It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. 106.5 Toronto, 95.7 Ottawa. Also on the iHeartRadio app. Download the app. Take us with you and listen to us anywhere you go. It's a real pleasure to welcome back to Moment of Truth, Sarah Milroy, Chief Curator at the McMichael Canadian Art Collection in in Kleinberg, Ontario. And uh, actually, Sarah was on during the summer talking about some events that were happening. Well, she's back because there's more exciting stuff going on. And, (laughs) and, And maybe to elaborate on some of those things we also spoke about. So Sarah, welcome back to the show. Oh, it's great to be back. Well, we have a big, the big mother of all shows. We are um, presenting an exhibition called Uninvited, Canadian Women Artists in the Modern Moment. Mm -hmm. And the show is really, (laughs) it's a monster. It's uh, almost 40, you know, different writers in the catalog. It is a a large roster of uh, women artists that were working in the period of the 1920s and 30s primarily, although yes. there are a few straggling dates on either side of that. Mm-hmm. But um, the the point of the show is to take a look at, at women artists who were active in the period when Canadian art was really defined popularly in the imagination by the group of seven and the white male artists of the day. Yes. And, um, of course, the group of seven is what I'm referring to, and that is... You know, at, at McMichael, we hold an, an extraordinarily deep and spectacular collection of the Group of Seven and, and their contemporaries, David mm-hmm. Milne, Emily Carr, and so on. Those are a well-known um, part of our collection. Um, but this exhibition really focuses on the women artists that were their contemporaries at that time who are making very different kinds of works, um, including Indigenous women makers from this period who were... Uh, in some cases, continuing traditional um, cultural practices in their art making. In other cases, they were making objects for trade into the new settler economy mm. and you know, trying to find their way forward mm. um, through through you know bringing their um, their work that had been made ancestrally um, into the marketplace, which is of course was never something that was contemplated by mm-hmm. um, indigenous peoples in the generations before them. So it's, you know, it's a complex show because it has many kinds of Canadian women in it and they're right. all, you know, they're all there. So all those different narratives are kind of woven together. Yeah. As you were talking there, I couldn't help but think how exciting that must have been for you uh, to look at all this work going through that. And and being that you said, like, it's it's 100 years and, uh, and, and you're looking at that time frame. Mm. What jumped out at you, if anything, uh, looking at the women and their backgrounds and where they were coming from that you think, you one yeah. either you found interesting, or you think that that an audience looking at this might want to look for. Well, you know, one of the distinctive things about the women artists of this period is, you know, the men that we were referring to in the group of seven, mm. you know, they were all involved with commercial illustration. Mm. Um, they were right. they were trained. A lot of them had had been to art art school in mm. you know here in Canada or you know in Europe in some cases, but they really came to their fine art practices via uh, commercial illustration. And mm. that, that I think, gives an orientation towards art making that is different in mm. terms of, 
you know, what is the market? Sure. And, you know, uh, obviously these paintings are, are deeply heartfelt, but they're framed within the context of being received. Yes. I wonder you know, when I look at the diversity and the radicality of the women artists at this time, whether or not they, you know, were in, in a sense liberated by not having that the expectation necessarily of selling the work to support families or, you know, um, uh, le- you know, lead households. They were making work um, that, you know, may or may not have had an audience. And there is a sense of um, you know, an exploration of the self that mm-hmm. could be, you know, could be a, an aspect of that sociological, you know, issue, or it could just be their own inclination. They also have completely different interests in subject matter. Like the men artists who prevailed in the day were really obsessed with this idea of wilderness, which, of course, we know is a, fa- is a settler fantasy mm. because these lands were not wilderness to indigenous people. They were right. home <laughs> and they were settled lands. Sure. Um, but, you know, the group of seven, you know, ha- I think have taken a bit of a beating over the past several decades for this sort of assumption of a kind of virgin wilderness. Yeah. And this, this became a kind of a credo in the group. Um, the women didn't seem to have any interest in that idea at all. And I, I don't think it's just because they couldn't travel with as much freedom as the men could. I think it's because they were interested in in people. They were interested in portraits. They were interested in the city. Um, as a subject, they were interested in social issues um, like poverty and, you know, during the Depression, you know, homeless people in the streets. I mean, mm. when you see, you know, when you see some of this work in this show, you kind of see the dark side of the moon of, mm. you know, the kind of rosy view of, of Canada that that is perpetuated in the paintings of the Group of Seven, beautiful as they are. And the the other big thing you notice when you look at women from across the country, I'm talking about settler women in this case, is there what I really truly see as a respectful and courteous interest in Indigenous women and the things that they made. So, you know, it's it's not just Emily Carr um, who is taking an interest in, in, in Indigenous culture. It's Nora Brown in Alberta, you know, and it's uh, Winifred Petchy Marsh, who was a missionary's wife in Arviat at Eskimo Point. Mm. She's a very interesting example because she was trained as an artist in London, mm. and then um, she married and moved to, to um, Arviat, which was then called Eskimo Point. And God bless her husband, he used to stick notes up all over the house saying, remember, you were first and foremost an artist, <laughs> which we love him for. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, she used to deliver babies and pull teeth and all that. But when she wasn't <laughs> busy with that, she made these exquisite watercolors of um, that community and of the land around it and of the the women and the children there. But the most notable part of her production are these very, very detailed jewel tone depictions of the beadwork mm. uh, made by women in this community. And she was a real connoisseur of it and studied it very, very carefully. And indeed, before she left Arviat, um, she acquired through trade or purchase, we're not sure how, um, a number of major beadwork pieces that ended up residing in the Manitoba Museum. So, what we're able to do in this show is put uh, an artist like Atasiak, who was one of the mm. you know leading beadworkers in that community, one of her one of her works together with um, the Winifred Petchy Marsh watercolor of it. And you know, there's other places where we are able to see portraits of the women who were making these objects. So, there's a real knitting together of the settler gaze 
and the indigenous presence, you know, in, in a number of these. We also have a basket by Sophie Frank, who was a, a lifelong friend of Emily Carr's, together with Carr's portrait of Frank and, and Carr's self-portrait. There's a massive, I don't want to steal the thunder from the end of the show, but there's a massive gallery at the end of the show devoted to Emily Carr, and it has uh, really in the middle of the space, uh, really uh, uh, presented with a lot of emphasis, a, a big selection of Coast Salish baskets that we were lucky enough to borrow mm. from the Royal Ontario Museum uh, in this kind of large, long, undulating table that kind of goes up and down and, and threads its way through the gallery space. But, you know, the baskets and the paintings of Carr really, like, are in a strong conversation with each other. And, of course, you know, the baskets speak of environmental knowledge mm. and history, mm. transmission, mm-hmm. Um and Emily Carr's paintings speak about her own experience of landscape, but they also speak about the brutality of resource extraction mm. in this period in British Columbia. So there's kind of the settler way of relating to the landscape and the indigenous way of relating to the landscape are kind of talking to each other in that room. Mm. And, you know, that's the final room in the show. It's, 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 it's breathtaking. And, you know, I think the meaning of it is, is deep for people now. I mean, the kind of way in sure. which, You know, Indigenous women, um, it has been explained to me that, you know, weaving the basket is the tip of the iceberg, that what Mm -hmm. you need to know is, you know, where the roots grow straight, Mm -hmm. where the clay is right for bearing the roots to to cure them and and give them color, you know, that all the knowledge of harvesting and preparing, you know, is 90%, if not more, of making the basket. So. They're opposites, you know, but mm. they but they meet here in this show to, to, to look at to look at each other and for people to be able to contemplate both. Sounds fascinating. What a great exhibit it sounds like. And that's on from September tenth until January sixteenth, I believe. Yes. Great. So it's gonna be with us all through the fall. Yep. And, you know, there is there's just so much material here. There, you know, there are a number of other spectacular indigenous makers in the show, Elizabeth Cat Petrant from Bear Island to Mogami, mm. beautiful moss bag, um, and also a basket by her mother um, as well in the same room. So you get this idea of intergenerational knowledge um, being passed down. Um, I would add also um, uh, Bridget Ann Sack, who is a extraordinary uh, quill work basket maker, uh, Mi'kmaq from Nova Scotia, who's we have a beautiful selection uh, in the exhibition. You know, there's a lot of Indigenous content in the show, mm. and there's a lot of content of um, settler women who are engaging with this uh, with this material. And mm. and there's a lot of stuff in the wall labels too. I love wall labels because I love <laughs> to write them. But you know, Anne Savage who was a, a very, very important settler woman artist in Montreal. She taught for many years at Baron Bing High School. And then in the summertime, she'd make her own paintings. But she got a commission in 1927 to travel to the Skeena River and uh, paint the communities and the landscape of the Skeena River. I was just in that region of British Columbia this mm. summer. And it's, of course, an extraordinarily beautiful mm. part of our country. Mm-hmm. And... Um, she, you know, when she was there, she was there at the at the pleasure of Marius Barbeau, who was the head of what was then called the Museum of Man, I believe, now the Museum of History. Mm. And she registers, you know, in her writing and her journals that she's offended by what she calls this, quote, silly little Barbeau man. Um, 
And the reason she calls him that is that he's she sees that he's rude and pushy mm. with the indigenous people mm. in that you know in that community. Mm. It was you know Get Meow and other communities that they were. Uh, visiting but you know she found him offensive there was a it, it was an intrinsic um kind of sensitivity that she had about how one might go about you know being invited to go back to the title of the show um i mean what's complex and interesting about the title of the show is you know it's called uninvited but of course all settler people were uninvited yes, here yes uh, but then also the women artists more generally were uninvited kind of to the high table of fame and fortune right. in canadian art yes so there's kind of rings within rings sure, here sure but you know it's super complex but um i think it'll be you know i think it'll be a very important show both for nudging people's understanding of of um the kind of parallel tracks of indigenous and settler experience you know in uh, in this period which mm. was of course such a fraught one for indigenous people mm-hmm. uh, but also to really understand the force of female cre- creativity in this yeah. in this moment i mean you you walk through the show and you are blown down by the power of the work that these women made and the fact that their names have been you know kind of not in yeah. common parlance and you know for all this hundred years almost of time since they were making these works yeah. it's just extraordinary that that so many people will be discovering these women now and i should add you know there has been a lot of outstanding scholarly work done on these artists over the years but the fact is that museums you know and it's a fact that they were largely run by men mm. um would not devote proper resources to either the exhibitions in terms of gathering the works and incurring the cost of that or producing catalogs that were like full color and you know properly resourced for um you know i don't know the, the research required to really you know make a bigger book or be able to do a, a book that has more pages in it so obviously mm. more information can be included like most when there are monographic mm. Uh, shows on Canadian women artists with the exception of Emily Carr Mm. where there's quite a bit but with the exception of Emily Carr you know an artist like Anne Savage or Prudence Heward brilliant brilliant women Mm. and you know very very slenderly represented in monographic um, exhibition catalogs just devoted to them so you know what we know why this is but you know the the hope with this show is to basically you know i've been saying to our to our funders and to our contributors and everyone we're building a battering ram we're really simply just trying to create a seismic shift in terms of how we we understand the history of art in this country and the the country itself and mm-hmm. I think that the presence of Indigenous women in this show is going to be a very powerful and engaging tool in that. Yeah, I remember using the, the term battering ram before from our conversation. and Well, it's on, it's on my mind. <laughs> I feel like a battering ram myself some days. <laughs> well, and you are describing a very, as you say, complex uh, presentation in this show. Yeah. So many levels to look at, so many levels to consider, Sarah. It sounds wonderful. Yes. I, I was thinking about your job, having to go through all of this stuff and look at yeah. it and try to decide what makes it, what doesn't, and, and even just looking at all these these fascinating pieces of work uh you must you must have some really wonderful moments um you know looking over all of this stuff but i guess also challenging moments as well in terms of trying to decide what will finally make it and and what won't yeah yeah well we had one real um uh 
late breaking development was a woman called Irene Sparks Drummond, who was a, a Afro-Canadian basket maker. She was uh, from um, a little community just outside of Halifax. And she was making baskets in this period in the 30s and 40s. We'd been looking and looking for a black Canadian woman in this period. And we were looking for a woman who was like a painter or a sculptor. We went high and low. And, and what ended up, you know, it was very important for us to have that reality represented in the exhibition. We ended up actually doing a, a, a major Denise Tomaso show, who mm. was a, a, camp, a contemporary Caribbean Canadian artist who... Uh, that show was up for a little while longer, actually. Um, uh, at the same time as Uninvited, in order to hold that space, you know, within the museum for for the creativity of Black women. Um, but we could not find anyone in the period because we were we were looking at painting and sculpture. We were not looking where we needed to look. Mm. Almost ninety percent of Black women in this period were in, in, engaged in domestic service, mm-hmm. and the other in in factory work or agriculture. And the, the communities around Halifax, the black women there, those communities largely migrated around the War of 1812 into Canada. Um, so, you know, the, the, it was quite a dense and, of course, Africville is very famous, but there are also a number of other communities, small communities, farming communities around Halifax that had, you know, a solid presence of um, uh, black emigre families in, in them. And... You know, we ended up deciding at the last minute, you know, after the publication of the catalog, you know, all the gates were closed. The show was finished and we found this woman and her story and we've included her in the show. So, Mm. you know, what's interesting is that her baskets are going to be shown in the same room with a with a painting by Prudence Heward called Dark Girl. Mm. And Dark Girl is is a nude of a of a black woman um, painted by Prudence Heward. It's a very famous painting in the history of Canadian art, but deeply troubling because the woman's expression is one of kind of abject discomfort. Mm. And the ch- and the likelihood is that this woman was a servant in the household, in mm. the Heward household, mm-hmm. and was sort of pressed into duty as a model. She was right. most likely not a professional model in Montreal. Right. And, and so, you know, she would have been, you know, making her livelihood in domestic service in the way that was very much the prevalent norm at that time and the basket you know Irene Sparks Drummond the baskets kind of speak to that because this is an, an you know another tradition in which female creativity expressed itself you know in in this in this idiom of basket making at the time because those you know the the um, cha- financial challenges facing mm-hmm. black women and their families i mean of course it was not likely that they would be going to art school Mm-hmm. So, you know, we'd been looking in the wrong place, mm. and but we found her in time to put into the show. And I nice. thought, well, I'm not going to leave it out just because the catalog's finished. Sure. You know, let's just be bold and, and, and do this and see how it feels. Yeah. And honestly, you know, we don't know how it's going to feel to see those baskets, yeah. uh, beautiful, dainty, gorgeous, mathematical works of genius that they are, Um in a room full of uh, white woman and one black mm, nude, mm, um, mm. It, it could be. It could feel bad. It could feel right. important. It, right. We don't know. Yeah. I mean, these you know, exhibitions are experiments, right. and all we can do is provide all the information we can, and put things out there for the public to chew on. And and mm. that's kind of the approach we've taken all the way through the show. Is let's not decide how people are going to feel about this. 
wow. let's put all the evidence out there of what was happening in Canada with women artists in this mm-hmm. time and let people think about it. Wow. wow, that's a lot for people to uh, consider, but a lot for people to look at. And uh, as you say, um, it's an exhibition that the McMichael has put together and, and Sarah yourself uh, curated and, and, and put together that people can go and see. But as you just said, it's an experiment. So people can be part yeah. of this experiment as well when they go to see the show. And that's running from September 10th uh, of this year until January 16th of 2022. You're listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is Sarah Milroy. She's the chief curator at the McMichael Canadian Art Collection in Kleinberg, talking about uninvited Canadian women artists in the modern moment. And uh, that's one of the things going on at the the uh, Kleinberg uh, McMichael Collection. Uh, but there are other things going on as well. As Sarah, you mentioned one, and I think it's finishing up fairly soon. Um, it's Denise Tomasos. Yes. Yes. Who who died about eight years ago, but an extraordinary Canadian artist originally from Trinidad. Mm. And um, that show is on until mid-October, I believe. Right. I'm just yeah. checking October here. October 24th, I believe it is. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that, yes. And that show is, is really spectacular. And what's wonderful is that while this show has been on, uh, I should say, too, that the Denise Tomaso show, our publication, has a, an essay in it by Essie Dukian, who many of your re- uh, listeners might know, a wonderful Victoria-based um, uh, Canadian author who agreed to, to write about Denise's work. She didn't know about her work, and, and we actually sent a small painting of Denise's out to live with her in Victoria while she wrote the essay, mm. and she's done a beautiful, beautiful job. But that that show, yeah, that show closes on October 24th. And one of the big works in it called Gore Island, if visitors come, you'll see it's a big black and white painting that's that's about eight feet tall. And God only knows how long it is. It's huge. Mm. And uh, we have just learned recently that 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 painting is going to the Whitney Biennial and will likely be acquired by the Whitney Museum. So, Mm. you know, Denise did not. You know, she was a professor at Rutgers and she'd gone to Yale I and mean, she had great mm. success in her lifetime. Mm. But it seems like that career is finally, you know, truly catching fire. Mm. And um, we just wish she was here to, to yeah. see it. But but her family is, her daughter is, you know, and uh, it's beautiful to be a part of that trajectory. Mm-hmm. Wow, great. So people can catch that up until October 24th. There's this other one, which uh, it seemed a little un- unassuming to me uh, until I went and looked at it and I found it really interesting. <laughs> You're talking about John Sasaki. I am. <laughs> <laughs> that is the sleeper hit of the summer. We are, people are just loving that show. John Sasaki is a conceptual artist in Toronto in kind of, I guess, early mid-career, mid-career. And um, John John has a, a really extraordinary brain, and he always looks at things from a fresh perspective. And he started his career as a landscape painter, um, <laughs> studying at Mount Allison. And then he came to Toronto, and he his art took a turn into the more conceptual. But his idols in his early years had been the Group of Seven. So what John did was work with our conservator, Allison Douglas, to take bacterial and fungal culture swabs <laughs> from objects that we own at the McMichael, like the easels and paintbrushes and so on, and um, paint palettes that had been used by the Group of Seven and Tom Thompson. He swabbed them. He then grew cultures from them in, in Petri dishes yes. and then photographed the blooms of those mm-hmm. um, 
those fungal and bacterial cultures in dishes. And weirdly and wonderfully, they kind of look like landscapes in a funny way. (laughs) And they are nature pictures of a different sort because, of course, you know, microbial life, Mm. you know, the, the miniature life we all know all too well right now is is part of nature as well. And so it's a kind of a riposte in a way to the group of seven, but it's really more a kind of a, an homage mm. to these artists that have been, you know, he's sort of making the Turin shroud out of these bits and pieces mm-hmm. that they left behind that we have in our holdings. Yeah. And the show is both kind of on some level, very funny, right. But also, you know, deeply poignant. And yeah. we're showing these photographs, which are big, they're large right. format okay. um, on the wall. And then the objects from which they were, um, you know, from which the bacterial cultures were taken are in the cases. So you can see all these things that the group of seven used, and then you can see what John Sasaki has made of them. And it's, it's just a marvelous show. We have it in our founder's lounge and um, people are just adoring it. Yeah. yeah it's a wonderful a, little show. And we're going to be touring it, it to various museums in Ontario after us to various right. places. Uh, uh, Tom Thompson gallery, uh, our gallery of Algoma, I think. And there's a couple of others that are, mm in the works so it'll be making the rounds of ontario so keep Great. your eyes out for it okay now uh, we're, we're, it'll be with us for quite a while it's yeah. not going anywhere anytime soon okay now the other thing that i found very interesting by the way um with the uh, tom thompson one um i didn't realize that he wasn't a member of the group of seven no was, uh, yeah he was the he was the kind of the inspiration in a way i mean he died in Canoe Lake before the formation of the group. Mm. So his death really resonated with the, with the painters mm. that would become the group. Mm. They felt um, they were hugely impressed by his extraordinary gift because he was really, he was trained in commercial illustration, but really kind of taught himself how to make those oil sketches that he made, which mm. are incandescently beautiful mm. And, you know, then he sort of flares and he has four or five solid years of painting in this classic Thompson style and then he dies. Mm. So, you know, and, and his death was also, um, you know, kind of at the same time, there was a whole generation of young men that died mm. at that time at war. Mm-hmm. So there was a which took on this kind of elegiac summons, you know, to to others who were still alive to sort of take up the sword and do something for Canada. And I think that's what the group of seven Mm. um, really, really sought to do. And um, yeah, so he was kind of the on switch for the group of seven, but not the group of seven itself. Honorary member. We also have a a beautiful room of Tom Thompson's, by the way, if you come into the gallery and go up the ramp, there's a whole room of them that are the cream of our collection of Thompson's and they are, spectacular nice so just before we finish up what can people expect if they go uh, can they get in to see all of these things with an yep. entry fee yeah we don't break it out all right sarah you've given us so much to think about so many things for people to go and see and mcmichael uh, send some very important uh, things as well thank you once again for taking time to join us on the show of course it's always my pleasure david all right sarah you take care and we'll be talking again soon i'm sure I hope so. Okay, take care. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. Sarah Milroy is the chief curator at McMichael Canadian Art Collection in Kleinberg, and it's been a pleasure speaking with her about some of the fascinating and wonderful things upcoming and ongoing at the McMichael Canadian Art Collection. More right here on Moment of Truth right after this pause. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. 
Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. My guest here on the show for this part of Moment of Truth is Megan McMurtry. She's an associate professor in psychology at the University of Guelph. She's the director of the Pediatric Pain Health and Communication Lab and a clinical and health psychologist with the Pediatric Chronic Pain Program at McMaster Children's Hospital. Dr. McMurtry's research and clinical interests focus on acute and chronic pain, medical procedure-related fear, as well as communication and family influences in these contexts. So it's a pleasure to have her here because we're going to be talking about an article she authored in the conversation. It is entitled, Needle Fears Can Cause COVID-19 Vaccine Hesitancy, But These Strategies Can Manage Pain and Fear. So it's a pleasure to have Megan with us here on the show. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So your your article in the uh, in in the uh, conversation, as I mentioned, uh, about fears around needles, uh, something of course we've heard a lot about uh, during the course of COVID nineteen. And so the first question, though, I have for you is: What is the difference between just but a fear and just saying I don't like getting needles? Yeah, absolutely. And I think we need to unpack. Um, fear, but also anxiety Mm. to understand this, right? Mm. So, you know, anxiety and fear are pretty closely related, um, but fear is really that in the moment alarm reaction that we all experience. Mm -hmm. And it can kind of range um, from lower levels to pretty severe levels, right? So if I come across a bear in the woods, um, I'm likely to have an alarm reaction and I should because that's adaptive in that context. Or I might be a little bit frightened um, by a door sort of slamming in the background, you know, when I'm at home and I know that I'm alone. Um, And anxiety is sort of similar, um, but it is more future oriented kind of apprehension. And so I might be anxious about an upcoming interview or um, a big presentation at work, for example. Um, And so both anxiety and fear and just kind of not liking something um, can they all can exist on spectra from kind of low to high. Mm. And where we really need to worry about these things in terms of needles is when the anxiety and fear get to really high levels. So for many people, you know, we may not like needles, um, but we're able to kind of manage that dislike or maybe that little bit of worry that we experience and successfully get the procedure done. Mm -hmm. And this is important, as you mentioned, because we need needles for um, in healthcare for diagnosis, for monitoring health conditions, um, for prevention um, of issues such as, you know, the COVID-19 vaccine. Mm -hmm. And so if we have higher levels of fear and anxiety, that can really get in the way. And so, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about the fact that over, um, you know, different ages, there are different sort of prevalences of those sort of more extreme levels of needle fear and anxiety, which I'll just for simplicity, um, talk about the needle fear piece. Yeah. So, so we know that for children, for example, needle fear um, is really common, sort of some level of needle fear is present in the majority of children. Mm. Um, And then in about half of adolescents, and somewhere between, you know, 20 and 30% of 20 to 40 year olds. Um, But that's just sort of some level of fear. But when it gets to be really extreme, that is less common, um, but still occurs. And we like our best estimates really are somewhere in one in 10 individuals. 
Right. Now, when you say that, what I, I'm wondering about is, is that at all related to the idea of protecting ourselves, you know, because it's an unknown and it's a foreign thing that's going to be entering our body. Does does that enter that anxiety element for most people, do you think? I think it can. Um, One of the things that we know about fears, especially as they got to sort of more of the extreme levels, is that they're not always logical. Mm. Um, But sometimes there can be like certainly a logic to it in terms of if we just take it on its surface, having you know, a metal object inserted um, and then something else entering our body that mm-hmm. wasn't there before, you know, that is a sort of strange concept if you if you take it just on that kind of level. Um, and so certainly, you know, when we think about children, their ability or inability to kind of fully understand what it is that wow. we're asking them to do can mm-hmm. play a role. And even for adults, you know, um, in speaking to adults who have needle fear, there are many things that they um, will tell me that they're afraid of. So sometimes it's around the pain. Sometimes it's around just the sight of something like a needle entering their body. Mm -hmm. Or it could be, as you suggest, this idea that um, something is kind of being injected into them. Right. This fear or anxiety, I, I mean, the way you start the article really sets it up very well in terms of, you know, thinking about the last time you were really afraid and, you know, breaking out into cold sweats and trembling and heart pounding. And, you know, when you, you put it like that around to something like a needle, that is that is a terrifying situation to find yourself in. And uh, for those people that you that we talk about, one in 10 people, I think your article says, uh, that people uh, have this reaction and, and fear. So that's, uh, that is a fair amount of people, though. It is. And I think um, the reason why I start the article that way, and thank you for your kind words, is that I think for some individuals who don't, who haven't experienced fear in this way or, or don't have um, kind of fears about something that other people find irrational, they, they have trouble kind of understanding or empathizing with people who have needle fears. Mm. But we've all experienced fear in some context, right? And so I think it's important for those of us who don't have high levels of needle fear to really kind of understand what that might be like and what we're asking people with high levels of needle fear to do when they're trying to get that needle. Because it's not their choice and they're not just sort of fully um, under, you know, have the ability to sort of snap out of it, right? That fear is, you know, um, is an alarm reaction that we're designed to have as human beings. And it's really unpleasant, right? Um, when we have that kind of fight or flight stress response kind of in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's important for us to, to think about what for those one in 10 individuals, um, that that's, you know, what they're facing. And, and for some of those individuals, they're able to um, still kind of focus on why they're getting, say, the COVID-19 vaccination um, and really kind of get themselves through it. And um, I certainly hope for them that the the procedure goes as well as it can. Um, The challenge can be that when we have those kinds of stress responses, it can put us, you know, at risk for having kind of a negative procedure, which, of course, if you think about it, then is going to make our fear go up. Mm -hmm. Um, And with a two dose vaccination or thinking Mm -hmm. about other needles is going to have implications for the next time. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, part of what I wanted to do with this conversation article, as well as other um, pieces that I've published is around uh, really conveying that there are evidence-based strategies to manage the pain and kind of low levels of fear related to needles 
as well as strategies that we can take from the specific phobia literature um, in terms of exposure-based treatments um, Mm. for fear, which can help individuals with those really severe fears. Because I think we really need to make these procedures as comfortable as possible. Right. And you you talk about some of those things in your article, but you mentioned phobias there. And and, and how does it relate from, say, this, this fear and phobia Yeah, great question. So um, I've talked about the spectrum, you know, of anxiety and fear from low to high. And I've talked about about one in 10 people who have that sort of really very high kind Mm. of levels. So a specific phobia is a mental health diagnosis that really is the combination of extreme fear and extreme anxiety um, and sort of distress, um, impairment, or avoidance of whatever the sort of phobic or feared situation is. So often we're familiar with arachnophobia around spiders mm. or um, people who really um, have difficulty with elevators or other enclosed spaces or heights, for example. Um, so these are all examples of specific phobias. And it's really the very, very extreme kind of tail end of that spectrum that I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. So for... Um, for the, the specific phobia that is related to needles in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, it's called blood injection injury phobia. So it kind of clusters a few things together. And our best um, estimates, it's somewhere around like three and a half to maybe four and a half um, percent of individuals meet sort of diagnostic criteria for a specific phobia, um, the blood injection injury phobia. But I think, you know, while certainly we, we should be concerned and try to help those individuals, many people who have high, high levels of fear are not going to necessarily show up yeah. to a mental health professional right. um, in order to get that diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So it's really such an, I think, an underestimate. And it's certainly an underestimate of the people who are still sort of suffering and impaired um, from their level of fear. So that's why I tend to focus on that kind of one in 10, um, because certainly there are studies showing that many people do not seek help or like will receive the diagnosis, even though um, the fear is getting in the way, if that makes sense. Have you ever been in a situation where someone has gotten to that level around the fear of, say, a needle or something uh, in your presence that you're trying to deliver to them for their benefit? Um, where they are either they have either fainted or they have uh, had such a, 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 a severe reaction that you you yourselves or the people in the room then must also feel stressed about the situation. Right. So you bring up a great, um, a really important point. Now, I'm not a vaccinator, right? right so right. I have been in the room um, with individuals who are extremely frightened and, it, and it's difficult um, often for people who have not had um, the training specifically mm. to deal with that to know what to do. Mm. Um, and I think there's a few reasons for that. But one thing I want to point out is that you highlighted sort of this idea of emotion contagion, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. And as human beings, as a very social species, um, that's very natural that we mm-hmm. do that, right? We have sort of, we engage in observational learning, you know, what's going on for you? Mm-hmm. Um, and oh, what what does that mean for me if I'm going through it next, for example, right? So I'm, I'm using a bit of a different context, but let's imagine, you know, the mass vaccination clinics that occur. Mm -hmm. And if someone is very afraid or is having kind of um, an adverse event during the needle, for some reason, having them on display for individuals who are waiting um, is really problematic, right? Because it's not Mm going to help the person who's having that um, 
that issue yep. manage any better, right? We, we, none of us want to feel like we're on display, right? right if right. something like that is happening. And then it also has a has the um, potential to drive up the the fear for those who are waiting, right? Yep. Um, and so that's something that um, as part of a, a World Health Organization um, subcommittee, um, where we looked at um, immunization stress-related responses. And that's this idea of like having these kinds of stress responses in the context of vaccinations. And really what can we do to prevent and manage those? Um, because they're not to do with something wrong with the vaccine itself, um, but they are um, often around sort of fear and other issues. And so really making sure that we have clinics that are designed in such a way so that clinicians um, know how to keep things calm and that clinics are designed so that there's sort of one-way traffic flow. There's not people, you know, who are on display when they're getting their vaccinations and people in long lineups because mm. prolonged standing is actually a risk factor right. um, for a vasovagal response, right? So sure. it's actually, there's a lot of points of kind of intervention, but it really does get back to also what you talked about with that sort of emotion contagion piece, right? There's a lot of players here, right? Yeah. The clinician needs to know what to do. The individual getting vaccinated needs to know what to do as well as any caregiver present, right? Needs to be calm. And then the people who are kind of waiting and observing, um, hopefully they're not necessarily observing everybody else getting the needles um, because that's not necessarily helpful mm. unless it's like a calm um, situation that's unfolding. Yeah, when you get into this, wow, there are so many things at play when you think of it. It seems like such a very simple thing to be getting a needle. And yet, uh, you know, look at all the things we're talking about. And you've just uh, mentioned that come into play to get this done, especially in in things such as a pandemic and people lining up to get needles uh, right around the world. Fascinating stuff. You're listening to Moment of Truth here on Element FM. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is uh, Megan Mc. Murtry. She is an associate professor in psychology at the University of Guelph. We're talking to her about her article that she authored in The Conversation. It is entitled, Needle Fears Can Cause COVID-19 Vaccination Hesitancy, But These Strategies Can Manage Pain and Fear. Now, uh, Dr. McMurtry just mentioned something else I want to tell you about. Uh, she was the co-principal investigator and an evidence lead on the National Help Eliminate Pain and Kids in Adults team, which created two clinical practice guidelines regarding vaccination pain and needle fear management. Aspects from the pain management guideline were endorsed for vaccinations worldwide by the World Health Organization. And recently, Dr. McMurtry was the sole psychologist on the small subcommittee of the WHO's Global Advisory Committee on Vaccination Safety, tasking with uh, creating guideline guidance rather on immunization stress-related responses. So it's a pleasure to have uh, Dr. McMurtry with us here on the show to talk about this. Now, I know you've been wanting to talk about some of the things to get around the vaccination hesitancy. And um, and and there is um, one thing I, I also, just before we get there, want to mention, and that is, what about the idea of just merely talking about this? Is that, I'm sure that could possibly be stressful to people. Right, okay, so excellent point. Um, so, yes, 
And by avoiding it, though, um, entirely, we're not going to make it go away, right? So as we know, anxiety and avoidance tend to go hand in hand, but avoidance doesn't um, help. And so we're going to talk about exposure-based management for needle fear and the idea is that you're facing your fear. So I think if we talk about it in a responsible way, then that makes sense, right? So um, if you uh, follow anyone who's sort of a a pain researcher, um, researcher on vaccine hesitancy also on Twitter, there's often an outcry now when the media um, presents pictures of people Mm. undergoing vaccinations Mm -hmm. who look horrified, terrified, um, in grimacing and lots of pain because if it's actually well-managed, this should not be the case. And so we don't need to be sort of... um, putting that out there as the face of um, being vaccinated, right? Um, And so I think we need to acknowledge that these fears um, exist and open the door for the conversation and allow space for it without kind of the fear mongering. So I'm going to give you an example, actually. So um, a study led by Dr. Anna Taddeo, on which I was also uh, a main partner, we did school-based vaccination. Um, We did a a treatment for school-based vaccinations in the mm-hmm. Niagara region. And okay. this has since become the CARD program or the Comfort right. Ask, mm-hmm. Relax Distract, right? So for the nurses in the study, initially there was some trepidation about us asking before the needle whether someone is afraid. Mm. Um, and the nurses were concerned, as many people are, well, won't that kind of suggest that to them? Mm. Won't that make it worse? Um, and really there isn't any evidence to suggest that that's the case. Mm. And in fact, it's actually, it opens a space for people to be able to talk about it and right. feel heard. Mm. And it also allows a clinician to feel prepared about who they have in front of them. Mm. So actually after the nurses um, had been implementing that for a little while, they actually came back to us and said, this was wonderful. <laughs> um, and we actually want to be doing this all the time. <laughs> right. And so it actually um, is, is very helpful um, if it's done in a responsible way and, and so getting beyond that uh what are some of the other uh therapies and and things that can be done to help right so the card system um is really helpful for that sort of pain management around the time of the needle and kind of low to maybe moderate levels of fear mm-hmm. but for people who i've been focused on at the beginning of our interview that one in ten yep. um individuals who are just really afraid yeah. um of needles and even hearing about them is difficult you know seeing pictures of them is difficult yep. They need a different approach um, because essentially their anxiety is going to lead them to want to avoid, avoid, avoid. Um, And if they are able to overcome that and then get into the situation um, anyway, if they have that fear response during it, they're at risk um, for having a pretty negative procedure. So we want to actually increase their confidence um, before they even get to the procedure. And so this is a sort of different approach and it's exposure-based therapy, which really falls under the umbrella of cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm. And it really uh, involves facing one's fear in a slow, gradual and controlled way. Mm -hmm. And what you're doing when you're um, facing that fear is you're learning over time that what you're most afraid of isn't going to happen. And that sort of most afraid of piece, that belief, we call that the catastrophic belief. Mm. So it's that you learn that it's not going to happen or that if it does, it's actually not as bad as you thought and you can kind of survive it. Right. Right, right. Um, And so this is really used for um, specific phobias and fears that are out of proportion to the danger posed, which is logical, right? Because Mm -hmm. obviously we wouldn't be getting people to face their fear to a 
for a bear in the woods, right? right. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> but when the danger actually is not um, as high as one thinks it is, yes. this is when we can use exposure-based fear right? or exposure-based treatment, excuse me. Yep. So it's considered, you know, really the gold standard um, for specific phobias. And so, you know, in in practical kind of steps, what happens is that an individual um, lists out all the different kind of components of what freaks them out, right? Mm -hmm. um, during like about the procedure. Sure. And this is really important that it's um, driven by the individual, meaning that they are really involved in saying, okay, it's this part that I don't like, this is what I'm afraid of, um, because fear can be really idiosyncratic, meaning that's sort of specific to the individual, mm. that while there are some things that are kind of common that people are afraid of, like pain, mm -hmm. um, there are other things that might be more specific to that individual. So um, they write out this, this bunch of list of things, then they order it, um, or then they rank or rate their fear in response to each of the situations. Um, so for a child, it would be maybe from zero to 10, where 10 is the most um, fear possible. For mm -hmm. an adult, they could go like zero to 100. Mm -hmm. And then they order the steps from lowest to highest. And that becomes what's called a fear hierarchy. So for example, I might really even be afraid of looking at pictures of needles, even cartoon pictures of needles. Right. But that might get me, maybe that's a rating of 20 out of 100 for me. Um, whereas watching a video of getting a needle procedure done, someone else having that done might be, you know, a 50 out of 100. So what I'd want to do is have a hierarchy that has sort of smaller incremental steps um, where I can practice facing each step, you know, facing my fear until I learn that my fear is going to come down and I can handle it before moving on to the next step. Right. So I'm gaining that confidence. And then once that sort of is more addressed, then the person can benefit even more from the, the pain management strategies um, that I talked about before. Right. So this is not an easy task um, right. for people. Sure. You know, it certainly um, is the gold standard, um, but it's not easy. And it's asking for kind of a lot of motivation um, mm -hmm. for people to do. Um, but I think it's it's really important for us to be aware that that treatment um, is out there and that, you know, we're certainly working on ways to make it more accessible um, for individuals. Um, in the most severe, complicated cases, you know, people are probably always going to need a mental health um, professional to help them. Yep. But it would be nice to, as part of like a stepped care approach um, for us to have more accessible treatments. And so that's something that I'm working on. Mm -hmm. It also sounds like something that, you know, the person has to be ready to want to uh, uh, do this as well. Yes. Right? Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, and they do have to be ready to do that. And that, and that can be a big ask, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and so it may be that it's only at the sort of lowest levels that they're, you know, willing to even start doing, or maybe yeah. it's imaginal based yeah. exposure, right? They're yeah. only just even imagining looking at pictures sure. rather than actually looking at pictures, for example. Yeah. It's a, it's a place to start anyway, because people are not, uh, don't easily face those fears. That's what, that's the whole point, right? It's, that's what makes it so difficult to begin with. Absolutely. And, and for the rest of us who, if we don't have that fear on needles, we can think about though, what we might be afraid of, right? Yeah. In yeah. order to be able to put ourselves in right. those people's shoes and not dismiss it. So the one thing that I haven't touched on is that um, strategy around the vasovagal response yes. or the sort of dizziness and painting. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something called muscle tension. So um, what we think is happening 
or you know what has been um, proposed to be happening when people faint in the context of needles is that their um, heart rate and blood pressure initially increase and then they suddenly decrease and that's what leads to the faint. Mm. So the muscle tension strategy is designed to counteract that by keeping up um, someone's blood pressure. Right. So really all it's very simple and all it involves is an individual um, tensing major muscle groups. Mm-hmm. So um, in this context, that would be legs and maybe your abdomen, mm-hmm. um, not your arms because you don't want to tense the one that the, the right. needle's going to go in. <laughs> um, but they, they tense those muscles um, until they feel kind of flush in their face and then they release the tension. They don't fully relax. They just release it. Yes. For, you know, say 20 seconds and then tense again and then release. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I will say that this, uh, you know, a brief uh, brochure describing how to do this, as well as um, brochures and some of the other things that we've talked about are available on Immunize Canada's mm-hmm. um, website. And certainly there's lots of the card materials there too. Great. Um, because many of these strategies are relatively, you know, straightforward, simple. Sure very cost effective and we want people to know um, that there are ways to make these needle procedures much more comfortable. It also sounds like if people do uh, take this approach that there could be uh, other benefits for them in terms of applying the same thing to perhaps other fears or other things that they want to overcome. It sounds like it has benefits. Absolutely. So exposure-based yep. um, treatment is, you know, is absolutely used um, for anxiety disorders yep. um, in general. Again, if we're thinking about mental health diagnoses, but it's true. Also, you know, all of us experience anxiety from day to day, yep. and kind of knowing, well, like this avoidance is not helpful. You know, I'm say, for example, I'm dreading sending that one email um, today. Do I avoid it all day and kind of have it on my mind anyway, or do I do it right away, right, <laughs> and just get it done? Yeah. Um, and so certainly, I think, um, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy um, is a success story um, within, you know, the the sort of therapy kind of literature and is something that can be very helpful um, mm-hmm. for, for day-to-day life. And I think for me, um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty passionate in getting these strategies out in the context of COVID, uh, but it's not just specific to the context of COVID, right? Yeah, because sure. needles are ubiquitous in healthcare. Sure, sure. And we really have a responsibility to make them as comfortable as they can be and to also to arm um, or give, you know, children and their parents and adults the strategies that they need um, mm-hmm. so that they can feel, you know, confident and comfortable yeah. um, in their healthcare. And I certainly remember as you were talking about the images of how uh, we were inundated with those images at the start of COVID-19, the news had them everywhere. And I remember talk about them, that they were asked to, to I think, pull those images back because people were getting you know, really sick of looking at them. And I, I you know, and, and rightfully so, even, even if you don't have a fear. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Let's show it as, as it can be a much more positive experience, mm-hmm. you know? So um, for, for many of us, when we do get our, our needles, it is a positive experience, yep. right? Yep. So um, it's not, you know, necessarily painting, uh, you know, a false perspective, it can absolutely be a positive, comfortable experience mm-hmm. um, for individuals. Megan, it's been fascinating speaking with you. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show and, and talk about this and share uh, some of the article that you authored in the conversation. Needle fears can cause COVID-19 vaccine hesitancy, but these strategies can manage pain and fear. And it's been a pleasure talking to you about that. And I thank you for sharing this information. Thank you so much for inviting me, David. You bet. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
Megan McMurtry is an associate professor in psychology at the University of Guelph, and we've been talking to her about her article in the conversation. You can find it there and read it for yourself. And that is our show for today. Thanks for listening to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. We'll see you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.